Good evening and welcome to Navara Live. I'm your host, Ash Sarka, and tonight I'm joined by journalist, counsellor and all-round good egg, Maurice McLeod. Maurice, how are you doing? Hey Ash, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm very well. I'm just so happy to be joined by you, man. I feel that this is truly the A-team. Michael Walker be damned. And we've got all sorts of treats coming up for you tonight, starting with a bit of climate catastrophe. Rishi Sunak doles out new oil and gas licenses for the North Sea. A Telegraph columnist hopes to become a Conservative MP. And Alistair Campbell has advice for leftists who are unhappy with Keir Starmer. Please stay tuned for all of that. Here's your first story today. In an increasingly desperate bid to cling to power, Rishi Sunak has decided to boil the planet in order to own the libs. Today, the Prime Minister announced that the government will grant hundreds of new oil and gas licences off the coast of Scotland. This was the justification he gave. I think it's really important for everyone to recognise that even in 2050, when we are at net zero, it is forecast that around a quarter of our energy needs will still come from oil and gas. That's why technologies like carbon capture and storage are important. But what is important then is that we get that oil and gas in the best possible way. And that means getting it from here at home. Better for our energy security, not reliant on foreign dictators. Better for jobs, for example, 100,000 supported here in Scotland, but also better for the climate. Because if we're going to need it, far better to have it here at home rather than shipping it here from halfway around the world with two, three, four times the amount of carbon emissions versus the oil and gas we have here at home. So it is entirely consistent with our plans to get to net zero. Of course, another way of becoming less reliant on oil and gas imports is to speed up decarbonizing. More solar, more wind and less oil and gas. But let's be real, this is about business. At the moment, the UK imports about half the oil we use, and it's the same with gas. But the UK also sells about half of what we produce on international markets. This graph is from the Office for Budget Responsibility. The green line shows commercial revenues from oil and gas. And as you can see, if you average the peaks and troughs, they've been pretty steady for the last 25 years. Last year, the war in Ukraine meant the value of oil and gas increased, leading to a spike in profits. But those revenues are dropping and are set to drop further over the coming years. As our oil requirements drop, enlarging the oil fields will just mean we'll be making more money from international sales. Nice profit, if you don't mind wiping out the climate progress we make here by selling fossil fuels to other countries. Now, Sunak could be honest and admit this is purely about the cash. But that wouldn't fit with a broader anti-green electoral pitch now brewing in CCHQ. Inspired by an incredibly narrow victory in the Uxbridge by-election, Sunak has decided that some green policies backed by Labour, like the London ULES expansion, are a vote loser. Instead, they're opting for a more bullish approach to the environment. Energy Secretary Grant Shapps summarised the direction of travel with this tweet. The graphic attached says, just announced hundreds of new oil and gas licenses. So amazing news, everyone. We're going to produce as much pollution as Denmark's annual emissions in a single policy announcement. And Shapps' tweet says, today we are saying no to Just Stop Oil and their political wing, the Labour Party. The Labour Party is the political wing of Just Stop Oil, if only babes. But making the association between Labour and the campaign group might prove good electioneering. Then there was this tweet from the Prime Minister himself. Labour. 
They want to ban new oil and gas licenses, rely 100% on imports, protect Russian jobs and risk UK security. Whereas the Conservatives back new oil and gas licenses, power more of Britain from Britain, protect British jobs and strengthen UK security. Despite the Tories being the ones who introduced net zero targets, they're now associating support for green policies with Russia lobbying. Sunak appeared for a brief interview on BBC Scotland Today, and and this exchange gives a pretty good sense of what the Tories would like the public to start thinking about green policies. Let me just ask you finally before you go, how are you getting up here to make this green announcement today? Private jet? Uh, I'll be flying as I as I normally would, and that is the most efficient use of my time. But again, I think actually that question brings to life a great debate here. If you or others think that the answer to climate change is getting people to ban everything that they're doing to no, stop people do flying, to stop people do, going, though, to stop that's people going on holiday, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely the wrong approach. Right, that's absolutely the wrong approach. I, I mean, every prime minister before me has also used planes to travel around the United Kingdom because it's an efficient use of time for the person running the country so I can keep focusing on delivering for people. But if your approach to climate change is to say no one should go on holiday, no one should take no, on a plane, a I think you, I think you are completely and utterly wrong. Am I? Right? That is absolutely not the approach to tackling climate change. There's a change. difference between traveling and actually what we are doing, what we are doing, what we are doing is, is investing in sustainable aviation fuel as one of the new technologies like climate carbon capture and storage, what will, will help us make the transition. It's not about banning flying. It's about investing in new technologies like sustainable aviation fuel that will make flying more sustainable. That's the right approach to this. But I look forward to having okay. that conversation with you again. Well, Thanks listen, very will, much will, for having me. You can, we bye bye. Thanks very much for having me. Bye bye. After you say something ridiculous, such a power move. I mean, that was such a disingenuous and fundamentally dishonest offering from Sunak because what he's doing is he's trying to defend his own use of private jets and private helicopters for distances that you could cover by road or by rail and saying, oh, well, I don't want to ban people's holidays. That's totally the wrong approach to tackling climate change. But those things are totally different because flying commercial when you are sharing the carbon with you know, potentially hundreds of other passengers is a fairer distribution of that carbon emission than it is to have a private plane where it's just a handful of people using the same carbon because it's the same size plane. Um, totally ridiculous. But then again, he knows that. That's why he bounced out of there with the quickness. I'm joined now by Fraser Stewart from Regen, who are an independent not-for-profit centre of energy expertise and market insight. Fraser also sits on the Scottish Government's Fuel Poverty Advisory Board. Fraser, the, the Tories say that these new oil and gas licences for the North Sea will bring down our domestic energy costs. Is that true? No, in a word, it's not true. And I think anyone with, with eyes can, can see through that. The, the big problem that they face, among, among many other problems that they face, is that energy bills have skyrocketed over the last couple of years precisely because we are so, so dependent on fossil fuels and so fundamentally tied and exposed to those really, really volatile international fossil fuel markets. Drilling for more oil and gas does absolutely nothing to reduce that reliance. It deepens that reliance, it deepens that relationship in it, and it makes us even more exposed for a much longer period of time. So it's not even that new oil and gas in a few years is sort of neutral towards household bills. It's 
a negative, negative thing for our household bills. It's much more likely to mean that crisis and prices like the ones that we see today repeat time and time again and, as ever, impact those already struggling the most, the hardest. You highlighted yourself as well at the start there, Ash, that a huge amount, in fact, it's more than 50%, it's more like 80% of the oil and gas that we produce here gets exported onto those international markets. That's not exported by you know, UK government PLC or by state oil. That's all done by your BP, your Shell, your, your Equinor, whoever in between, these big multinationals. It serves to keep us much, much more deeply tied to those. And it really serves to line their pockets further over probably a number of a number of years and decades, while the rest of us, you know, suffer and wait for real action to be taken. The last point on this is that if I'm someone sitting in my house struggling to afford my energy bills, which I very much am, by the way, as millions of others are and have it much worse. But if you're someone who's struggling with your bills today, looking at the end of the month, how am I going to be able to afford this? You're hardly going to be heartened by the promise of more oil and gas, potentially more oil and gas, because very little of this actually ever comes to bear. But the promise of more oil and gas in potentially, you know, 20, 25 years time. It was 2001 when we first granted the licenses for, for Cambo and Rosebank, and we still don't have them yet. So I don't think anyone's going to take any solace. And I think it's fantasy and flies in the face of common sense to think that the best way is to delay our transition to renewables, which are very much ready to go, very clean and very affordable right now. I want to see what Labour have to say about this because they have made a commitment to keeping the oil and gas licences which are issued under this Conservative government. So what does that mean for their green commitments? There's a real risk of undermining those green commitments. Now, what I will say is Labour's recent sort of signals and messages around you know, seizing the opportunity of net zero, delivering the, the clean energy transition and all the opportunities that go with that, that's really, really positive. Um, but you still cannot have more oil and gas, point blank, period. There's no way around that, whether it's Labour or the Tories delivering it. We cannot have that. The International Energy Agency have already told us time again, scientists tell us every other day that new fossil fuels is simply not compatible with a livable planet, with keeping the planet within those bounds of 1.5 degree heating. So there's there's no net zero plan policy or strategy, however bold or ambitious it might seem on the face of it, that can deliver what we really need to deliver if it doesn't also include a fair, just and swift transition away from fossil fuels. And that starts with not committing and revoking commitments to expand fossil fuels ASAFP. So let's talk about the government's net zero target. It's promised to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Is that even possible with these new oil and gas licenses? Let's say that, you know, the, its version of Cambo and Rosebank does get developed and they do start drilling and they do start exporting oil and gas. Have they just driven a coach and horses through their own promise? They have. In a lot of ways, they have. And it's not just now, I think it's important to, to recognise that it's not just because they're expanding fossil fuels, which is a, a massive, you know, atom bomb on that net zero target. But it's also because they're concurrently rowing back on all the other stuff that needs to be that needs to get done. You might you might be inclined to believe for a second that they are committed to net zero by 2050 if they were doing the other things that need to happen alongside, you know, well, maybe need a bit of oil and gas to help with that transition, to steward the transition. That's not happening. So what we're seeing now is a complete undermining, a complete explosion, a complete blowing up 
of those net zero by 2050 commitments from what can only be described as a really short term attempt at political football. And I don't think they'll be remembered awfully kindly for it, especially when we're, you know, having to pay two, three, four times as much in 20 or 30 years time to do all the stuff that we know needs done now today anyway. And especially as this this climate crisis, crisis deepens and deepens and deepens. Oh, well, you know what they say, no bad press on a dead planet. Now, Sunak was in Scotland today to make these announcements, but he was also there to launch a new carbon capture project in the region. The ACORN project in St. Fergus, Aberdeenshire, is one of four carbon capture initiatives across the UK that will potentially share in a £20 billion fund. There are two more in the northeast of England and one in Merseyside. Carbon capture sounds pretty good as a minor part of the decarbonisation mix. It's an emerging technology that promises to trap carbon dioxide produced by fossil fuels before it can damage the atmosphere. But announcing a pretty small carbon capture project on the same day as promising to grant hundreds of new oil and gas licences, it's given greenwashing. Stuart Gilfillan is a geochemist at Edinburgh University and he told The Guardian this. Whilst it is fantastic to see this much-needed investment in carbon capture and storage, it is extremely disappointing to have it used as a headline-grabbing smokescreen to distract from a further oil and gas licensing round. If Rishi Sunak and his government were truly serious about meeting net zero, then he would mandate the capture and storage of all the CO2 emissions that will result from these new licenses as a condition of them being awarded. This is the only climate-compatible way for the UK to continue to extract fossil fuels, whilst developing the UK carbon capture and storage expertise urgently needed for a net-zero future. Fraser, do politicians basically talk about carbon capture because it's a reassuring myth that we don't have to change our economy or our lifestyles because tech will swoop in and save us? I think that's a really, really nice way to put it, Ash. It's very, it's very much a, a reassuring myth. If you tell yourself that there's a magic technology coming down the line that will save us all and means that we can continue business as usual, then you can understand why some in the fossil fuel industry in particular would be very, very happy about that. But the reality, of course, as Stuart in the, the last quote highlighted, is that it is an emerging technology. It's very, very small scale just now. It's also massively, massively expensive. It doesn't operate at the size or the efficiency that we'll ever need it to. And it's probably unlikely to operate nearly the scale needed to pull all the pollution and emissions from uh, the fossil fuel industry writ large, whether that's just in the UK or elsewhere. But there's also a really, really fundamental logical principle here. Now, I'm no geoengineer. But I feel like I understand enough to know that if you keep putting emissions out into the atmosphere, that's a lot of damage that's going to happen in the meantime. And it also means that we're slowing down um, and abandoning by Rishi Sunak's uh, recent messages, slowing down action that we could take now. The best way to combat emissions is to target them directly at the source. That means getting us off of fossil fuels and accelerating a fair and a just transition over to clean, affordable homegrown renewable energy and all the good stuff, you know, the low carbon heat and transport and all the stuff that we need to do that goes along with it. That is fundamentally and will always fundamentally be the common sense option for dealing with emissions rather than sitting around and praying to the technology gods that carbon capture will do a job that we're pretty sure it probably won't in 20 or 30 years time. Can I ask one more question at the risk of sounding like a really stupid person? So, Carbon capture, I understand that if they pull it off and they make it more efficient and more affordable than it currently is, 
could be more efficient and more useful than what we've already got. But don't we already have pretty good carbon capture technology and it's just called trees? Like, what? why are we always talking about this technology that doesn't really exist yet, but we don't talk about carbon sinks, natural carbon sinks? I think it's in large part because if we acknowledge that we've got some of the solutions, whether that's to capture the carbon or whether that's to stop the emissions at the source, if we admit that we've got those solutions already, then we're forced to act on those solutions and we can't just keep, you know, lining the pockets and pandering to the bank accounts of big multinational oil and gas and fossil fuel companies and, and the shareholders that back them. The reality is that we have those natural solutions and they will, they will play a big role. They are playing a big role already. They open up a whole load of other questions about ownership and land and all that kind of stuff and who benefits and value, et cetera, et cetera. But we have the, the technology and the solutions that are affordable, that are shovel ready, that we're waiting to get online right now if this government would get out of their own way, start valuing you know, the climate as it should be, start valuing people and communities and their bank balances as they should be in their lives and their livelihoods uh, to you know, revoke the ban on planning for offshore wind to start insulating houses that they should have been doing 10 years ago. We have the solutions, whether they're natural or otherwise, they just don't want to implement them because it would mean change in business as usual and it would mean less lining of the pockets at our expense. We need them to get out of their way, get out of our way and get on with what we know people want to see and what can be done now rather than way, way down the line in a fantasy future. Let's move on to our next story. Rouse and the Labour Party are something we're seeing less and less. That's because Keir Starmer has ruthlessly stamped down on much of the opposition within the party. But in an interesting article in the I newspaper this weekend, it suggests that it may not all be smooth sailing for the party leader, with challenges emerging from new and powerful directions. This was its headline. They hate Burnham, they're furious with Khan, why Team Starmer and Labour's mayors will clash. We'll come to those quite spicy quotes later, but the article is really about how devolution and how incredibly difficult devolution is for a party that's focused power at its centre. Devolution is something that Labour has made a lot of noise about recently. Just last year, they published a 150-page policy document on, on how, if it wins the next election, it would, quote, empower towns, cities and regions to make their own economic and social decisions. But as seems so often the case with Keir Starmer's Labour Party, things on the ground don't quite match the theory. How can Starmer's command and control attitude fit with a promise to devolve more powers to the regions? We've already seen a bust-up between London Mayor Sadiq Khan and Starmer, after the Labour leader seemed to blame Khan's ULEZ expansion for their very narrow loss in the Uxbridge by-election. And in May, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham had this to say about his relationship to the Parliamentary Labour Party. Whenever I go out there with something positive, uh, the, the negative Westminster briefing machine somehow clicks in, into gear. You know, all, all I'd say to them is leave me alone. You know, I'm, I've been out there being supportive of, of the party and working for a majority Labour government, as everyone is, but I'm doing my thing. I'm, I'm building a really powerful, positive agenda for Greater Manchester and to have the kind of old, the old ways of Westminster trying to cut across that with their negative briefing and, you know, their insecurity. I honestly don't know what purpose they think it, they think it serves. But anyway, I, it is what it is, I guess, Matt. You know, I'm out there today putting forward a positive policy that I think Labour voters, ex-Labour voters, Tory voters across the country will, will probably say, yeah, this, this, is, this is needed and it would be nice to have some support. 
As one advisor to a regional mayor told the I, I don't think it's any secret that they hate Andy Burnham and brief against him. They are furious with Sadiq Khan about free school meals. Now, maybe there's a natural tension that's going to arise between a leader who needs a national victory and local leaders who are better able to refine their offer to their community. But mayors have the power to adopt popular policies that the national party rejects, as well as the platform to shout about it. That internal source of political pressure creates a more difficult contradiction for Starmer. As a result, one Labour source in Greater Manchester was sceptical about Starmer's devolution promises, telling the I newspaper this. In terms of devolution, why would you hand over power that can be used against you? All you do is strengthen your opponents. The autonomy of the mayors also means they can criticise Labour's national policies, either by word or by deed. Andy Burnham has vocally criticised Starmer's decision to keep the two-child benefit cap, and Sadiq Khan's introduction of universal free school meals for primary school children in London made Starmer's decision to rule them out nationally look all the more cruel. A Labour mayoral advisor told the I this. I don't think the leader of the opposition knows what to do with Metro mayors. They haven't figured it out yet. I would say the relationship between Starmer and mayors has been non-existent. Their instinct is to command and control. Mayors don't have the whip hanging over them. I think instinctively this administration feels uneasy about that because they are so focused on message discipline. Current North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll represents the biggest clash so far between the Labour Party and its mayors. He quit Labour after the party failed to select him as a candidate for the mayor of the larger northeast region. The party said it's because he shared a platform with filmmaker Ken Loach, who was suspended from the party for criticising its handling of anti-Semitism complaints. Andy Burnham and Liverpool's Mayor Steve Rotherham both broke ranks to criticise that decision. For Driscoll, Starmer's attitude shows a failure to understand modern politics. He told the I this. They, as in Labour's leadership, are desperate to control the news agenda. But the world is changing, the politics of the 1990s is gone. Mayors have a direct mandate and are able to change things that can't be done from Whitehall. I think Andy and Steve would both say they have done their own kind of politics since becoming mayors. I think Andy once said, it's not like grown-up politics once you leave Westminster. It's not about which team you're on. What the Labour Party should do is say to their mayors, tell us what you want, tell us what your priorities are, and how can we help you deliver it? If Labour win, could Starmer slow down the devolution agenda? Another source close to a northern mayor said this. Starmer would have a really hard time slowing down devolution. It's Labour's natural environment if the Tories become opposition and Starmer starts to slow it down or doesn't grow it. It would be an obvious point of attack. But the source also saw the potential for local issues to be exploited by the Tories in a general election. They said this. If you focus on a local issue, there are lots, there are lots of them in different areas that can be divisive. That would test the relationship between Labour HQ and mayoral offices, but I think that would take a lot of organisation from CCHQ to essentially plant lots of little mines across these areas and hope they will get lucky. It will be an interesting dynamic if Starmer becomes Prime Minister. We often react to government announcements quite critically. It will be different, particularly when we want to get a better deal. Maurice, come on, spill the tea as a Labour insider. Is it true that the Labour leadership is wrestling internally over what to do about the relative independence of Labour mayors from the Westminster machine? Um, I, I think the idea that I'm a, a Labour insider is is, is quite is uh, quite comical. But no, as as someone, I'm a La I am a Labour councillor, and so uh, you know, and I'm obviously rooting for for for, for a Labour win. 
Um, this this is tough, though. I think for the leadership because you're right; they they are uh, obsessed with sort of message control and and everything comes from the top, and it's all very uh, um, you know um, uh, um, cultured and and organised from 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 his office. And at the same time, you've got you know by definition powerful local politicians who are connected to their you know have bigger mandates than 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 the labor the labor leader will have for instance um it, you know you you we devolution happened to engage local people with with the politics that's going on in their area to make them feel that they have a say and that that, that, that there is some power and influence that's more direct than than at Westminster and to have sort of Labour pushing the other way would seem really weird. It would seem really odd, but it, I also feel like it would go against the the mood of of of, of maybe the current leadership to be uh, open and inclusive. And, oh, let's have what ideas. And, yeah, do tell us what's important in your area. I can't. I can't see um, that that level of of openness would seem a risk. Maybe. Let's say, for instance, that Jeremy Corbyn was still leader of the Labour Party, or you had a very left-wing, very socialist figure leading the Labour Party. Would it be the case that they too would struggle with devolution because they would have a, a vision that they want to execute from, you know, the Westminster machine? But you do have, on the flip side, fairly right-wing Labour councils, right-wing Labour councillors who may not want to implement it. I mean, is this just something that would trouble any Labour leader, regardless of what? side or wing of the party they're on yeah yeah the democracy is is tough it's not it's not it's not easy so um uh, yeah i'm not at all sort of saying oh because of where the current leadership is politically it's um it's it's always going to be a contest between what you want to organize from from the center and what you're allowing you know the, the power that you quite rightly have 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 allowed out to to you know to regional mayors. It's it's always it's always going to be that battle. So yeah, and I'm sure under 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 a more left wing Labour leadership, you'd have similar arguments going on from a different direction, um, and it would be tough. And the question is, are you do you see yourself as leadership going? Okay, this part of my job is going. Wow. Okay, there's a conflict here. How do we uh, navigate it in a way that does um, Keep power locally, but also um, is in keeping with whatever my national plan is. You need to find a way of doing that, rather than it feels quite confrontational at the moment. Um, and it, you know, most of these mayors aren't hardcore lefties, so it's nothing to do with that. You know, it feels quite. I can see. You know, we're early doors where everyone's sort of pulling together for, you know, for a hopeful soon election. It, it, the, the, these these rows will get more. I fear. Well, we've got another story coming up on Labour Party dissent, and let's go to it now. Shut up, plebs. Your betters have something to say about political dissent. Grace Campbell is the comedian and daughter of Alistair Campbell, and in an interview with the Metro, she had this to say about lefties who are dissatisfied with Keir Starmer's leadership of Labour. Right now, I just think people on the left need to stop arguing so much and just get Keir Starmer into power because we have had over 10 years of the Tories now and the country is fucked. Nothing is working, nothing is functioning, so we just need to get behind Labour at the moment. You can't blame people for what their relatives are like. Nigella Lawson can't help that her dad was Margaret Thatcher's chancellor and I can't help that mine's an absentee bum. 
But in the case of Grace and her father, Alistair Campbell, it's clear that they're both quite happy to leverage his name and fame in the service of her career. Grace Campbell's a very, very famous comedian playing here tonight. Where are you going? No, we're going to Bongo's Bingo's. No, Bingo's. Have you have you heard of him? Do you recognise him? No. Have you ever heard of Bruce Campbell? No. Never heard of that baby. Do you know who he is? No. No. Going to the show tonight. Yes. I know your face. I know your face from. He's an actor, Hollywood actor. Have you heard of Bruce Campbell? No, I've not. You've never heard of that. Do you recognise him? No. 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 Okay. Do you know who he is? Oh. Politicians. Advisor. Yes. That's the one. It's giving Nepo, baby. Unsurprisingly, this father-daughter duo have been singing from the same hymn sheet when it comes to Keir Starmer, as Alistair makes clear in this supportive tweet. People on the left need to stop arguing so much and just get Keir Starmer into power because we've had over 10 years of the Tories now and the country is fucked, she said. Here, here. Couldn't have put it better myself. That's right, folks. Sit down, shut up, and get behind Keir Starmer. Now, I actually have some sympathy for this view. If you're a lifelong Labour man or woman, your position is probably that any Labour win is better than a Tory one. And personally, I think it's always better to try and make a positive case for someone's vote rather than one based on there being no alternative. But it's a coherent argument on its own terms, even if I disagree with it. But let's just take a quick look at Alistair Campbell's own record and see if he stopped arguing and got behind Labour during the Corbyn years. I'm going to ask Alistair a very blunt question, first of all, as someone who spent years at number 10 with Tony Blair and before that um, as a prominent Labour figure. How did you vote? Uh, I voted Liberal Democrat. Mm. I didn't vote Labour for the first time in my life. Wow. And it was a very, very strange feeling, but I just felt on this issue... At this time, I think the Labour Party has let its own supporters down, it's let its own members down, and I think it's let the country down in the way that it has failed properly to devise a policy that the party and the country could unite around, and the way that it failed to campaign. As a campaigner, I mean, fair play to Nigel Farage's party, they campaigned. So that's Alistair Campbell there admitting that he voted for the Liberal Democrats in the European elections. But I hear you cry, those are just the Euros. It's a proportional representation system and it doesn't decide who gets to form a government. So how did Alistair behave during the 2019 general election? Fascinating few hours with School Truth out canvassing for Luciana Berger in Finchley and Golders Green. I know UK Labour second last time, but the anti-Semitism and general views re-Corbyn mean she is best placed pre, I imagine that's re, People's Vote UK candidate. That was Alistair Campbell on Twitter in 2019. So you got that right. Because of general views on Corbyn, he went out canvassing in Finchley and Golders Green for the Liberal Democrats. <sighs> what about self-identifying comedian Grace Campbell? Did she silence her misgivings, stop arguing, and throw herself into getting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street? Well, no. Here's a tweet slamming Corbyn for canvassing in Leicester while anti-Brexit protesters marched in London. Did you get the dates mixed up, Jez? Today, as one million people marched, we, the young people, who once loved you so much, we chanted your name at festivals, were instead chanting, where's Jeremy Corbyn? And you're just going to act like it didn't happen. Absolute loser. Here's the thing which winds me up. When Alistair and Grace Campbell didn't like the direction of a Labour leadership, they didn't stop arguing. 
they didn't take the view that defeating the Tories was more important than the issues they felt animated about. And in fact, they were quite happy to snipe, undermine, and even campaign against a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party. And you know what? That's fine. That's called living in a democracy. If you don't like the political leadership you've got, you can speak up and even cast your vote elsewhere. But apparently, neither Grace nor Alistair Campbell think that anyone else should have the same right as them. They've got the luxury of democratic discernment, and you just have to keep quiet and cross the right box come election day. Democratic rights aside, I think there's a strategic question here as well. Loyal voters don't get rewarded. They get taken for granted. So how did Brexit become Tory party policy? It was because Eurosceptics started voting for another party. Why did the Red Wall become important to Keir Starmer after being neglected for decades? Well, because they started voting for another party. And why does Keir Starmer feel safe abandoning popular and pragmatic policies? It's because he knows that the people who like them are going to vote for him either way. And Alistair Campbell knows this intimately, because that was the whole shtick of the People's Vote campaign. If a Labour MP didn't commit themselves to a second referendum, regardless of how their constituency actually voted, a campaign machine kicked in to redirect their votes elsewhere or discourage them from turning out for Labour. And I know, lots of people are going to look at this and turn around and say, oh, it's all right for you, you don't need a Labour government like truly deprived people do. And yeah, there's some truth in that. I'm not someone who's at the sharp end of austerity. But if Labour aren't going to end austerity, if they're not going to end the cruelest and worst aspects of Tory economic policy, isn't it worse to stop pressuring them about it? Ultimately, if you're just going to turn around and give Labour your vote, Keir Starmer does not give a shit that you abhor the two-child benefit cap or that you really want to abolish tuition fees. You've given up the only leverage that you have the minute you said you'd vote Labour no matter what. I think we can move on to the next story after that rant. Alas, Matt Hancock, we hardly knew ye. The former health secretary and I'm a celebrity contestant announced last year that he'd be stepping down as MP for West Suffolk at the next general election, meaning a tasty safe seat was available for enterprising politicos. Enter Nick Timothy. He's just been selected as the Conservative candidate for the constituency. If he sounds familiar, that's because he was Theresa May's co-chief of staff. He was forced out of his post after MPs blamed him for the loss of her parliamentary majority in 2017 because of his election strategy, and he spent the intervening years tweeting angrily and writing for The Telegraph. So what do you need to know about Nick Timothy? Firstly, he really doesn't like us. In a response to Zara Sultana on Twitter, Nick Timothy said this, There's a reason nobody reads Navarra media. It's because it's shit. The second thing is that he's quite keen on pushing political narratives that are uh, a bit dog whistly. He was responsible for Theresa May's 2016 Tory party conference speech, the one where she took aim at citizens of nowhere. The speech was condemned, as Vince Cable did, for echoing Adolf Hitler's anti-Semitic fear-mongering about rootless cosmopolitans, people coded as Jewish, who are undermining the nation from within. And it didn't stop there. In an article for The Telegraph, Nick Timothy presented George Soros' funding for a pro-EU pressure group as a shady anti-Brexit conspiracy. Now, I'm not a fan of big money in politics, 
but it's a bit sus that you pick on the Jewish guy who's subject to anti-Semitic smears in Poland and Hungary to suggest that he's pulling the strings to undermine British democracy. And earlier this year, Nick Timothy took to the pages of The Telegraph to rail against the display of the new and inclusive Pride flag. This is what he had to say. Throughout Pride Month, shop fronts were decked out not in the older rainbow flag, but the new Progress Pride flag, which adds new colours and a circle to represent trans people, non-whites and the intersex. Government buildings, including the Foreign Office and the Bank of England, have flown the new flag. Parliament has used it on its Twitter feed. A Cambridge college published a grovelling explanation for flying the old flag because they had not applied for planning permission to fly the new version. At a time when trans ideology is risking women's privacy and safety, denigrating femininity with its grotesque caricatures of women, and ruining young lives with chemical treatments, the ubiquity of such displays is for many people oppressive and insulting. Yet the decision makers fear the mob more than they fear the moderate wider public. Lord, grant me the entitlement of a straight guy complaining that the pride flag doesn't adequately represent his worldview. I mean, look, it's it's really not for either of us, Nick. We're straight. But look, this is pretty cut and dry transphobia. Because what Nick Timothy is saying goes far beyond any respectful, good faith discussion about how self-ID might interact with single sex spaces for women. He's saying that any representation of the trans community amounts to an ideological attack on women's safety. And it's those people who feel like trans people are discriminated against, that they need more legal rights than they have currently, who are oppressive and insulting. Not the politicos turned journalists who disparage trans women as a grotesque caricature of femininity. So what we're getting is a real policy exchange pilled headbanger who thinks the biggest problem facing the country is that the pride flag looks different these days and can't stop doing an accidental anti-Semitisms all over the place. It's as if a human being sprang fully formed from the Telegraph's id. West Suffolk has a conservative majority of 23,000 and, barring a spectacular upset, will probably stay blue at the next election. So, Maurice, what do you reckon? Is Nick Timothy standing for MP as the first step towards a run for Tory party leader? I think that's the only reason anyone stands for Tory MP, isn't it? They, <laughs> they're all on that trajectory. Um I mean, he's, he's, he does seem fairly um, classic and standard. He's, he's already up for the culture war stuff and, you know, the trans. He seems like he's ge geared up for that. And he's even got sort of interesting facial hair, which I think counts as a, as a personality. So we, we, may well be, we may well be looking at the future prime minister. And if, if the polls uh, end up anywhere near... Sort of what they're showing at the moment, that there might not be that many Tories left. So 23,000 is probably how many you'll need to stay in Parliament. Did you think it was as bizarre as I did that you had a straight guy complaining about the Pride Progress flag? Because I was really like, we're not meant to be in this picture, cuz. This isn't for us. This isn't our discourse. We can take the weekend off. It's a tune we've heard before. It's like, right-wing politicians suddenly caring about, I don't know, working-class white boys or something. It's like, that's not your thing. You're, 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 you're using this to bash someone, um, in this case, the trans community, because it plays to his crowd. Of course, you know, I asked him a couple of months ago, he wouldn't have known what the different flags meant, I'm sure. So, so it's, it's, yeah, performative nonsense. One last thing to ask you on this, and it's about what the Conservative Party after Sunak might actually end up being. Because they've 
jettisoned Johnsonism with Boris Johnson, which is a kind of red Toryism, little bit of regional redistribution, do a bit of culture wars over here. You've got Rishi Sunak, who is sort of doing austerity 2.0 whilst trying to dip his toe into the culture wars. What comes after that? Where are they going to go? It's yeah, it's, a, it's a, an interesting one. I guess it will depend on what happens, obviously, at the next election. If they lose and you know, Starmer's doing stuff and being popular and, and that, you know, then that squeezes quite a lot of space out that the Tories could move into. And, and the only, the only area of, the only uh, sort of land they could move into is, is, is further right wing and being, being even more on this culture thing. But I feel like, I hope that that's a smaller and smaller rump of society. So yeah, this it's, I, I think what happens to the Tories over the next few years is going to be, is going to be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, fascinating, like watching something grow in a Petri dish and you're a bit like, oof, what's that going to turn into? If you're watching us for the first time, thank you. We do the show five nights a week at 6pm every weeknight, so please do subscribe. But our show is entirely funded by you. And if you want to support the work that we do, go to navara.media slash support and donate the equivalent of one hours of your wage per month or whatever you can afford. We know times are tough. Let's move on to our final story. Agnes Calamard is the Secretary General of Amnesty International, a human rights defender with decades of experience. She's headed up the organisation since 2021. She's now appeared on the BBC's Hard Talk, where the question was whether Amnesty's influence was waning. Soon, the conversation turned to Israel, where Calamard was asked this. Is it representative of your impartiality to consistently call Israel an apartheid state? It's uh, representative of the fact, you know. Apartheid is, of course, blatant, out-and-out systemic racism. So you're, in essence, Mm -hmm. saying Israel is a racist state. Yes. The state of Israel is practicing a crime against humanity of apartheid against the Palestinian people. We have investigated uh, those violations for four years. Uh, we've uh, produced this report in uh, February 20 last year uh, on, uh, on, the, on apartheid, mm-hmm. calling on uh, the, the state of Israel well, to not, dismantle not, To be fair, it. not just one report, many reports uh, accuse Israel of systemic apartheid in everything from the operation of its security forces in the occupied territories to its more recent use of surveillance technologies. Yeah. You characterise it consistently as apartheid. Uh, but listen to the impact your reports have had inside Israel. For example, former senior figure in the government there, Yair Lapid, he says, Amnesty doesn't call Syria, where the regime's murder half a million of its own citizens an apartheid state or Iran or other murderous regimes around the world. It is only Israel. Look, uh, this is not the first time Amnesty International has used apartheid. We've also demonstrated uh, apartheid in the context of Myanmar. We have certainly denounced the massive crimes against humanity committed by the Syrian governments. But the fact that we are criticizing and denouncing uh, the policies, laws and practices of the Israeli government does not amount to anti-Semitism. Of course, anti-Semitism must be denounced. Of course, Amnesty International will and does denounce it. That was a pretty definitive answer to the question. But it wasn't enough for the host who wanted to talk about Israel a little bit more. 
We started this interview talking about the many problems around the world. We could have mentioned specifically Myanmar or Ethiopia or a whole host no, of you others. Picked, you picked. I did not pick. No, no. You picked. So I'm just saying, when yeah. you consider the amount of resource, the amount of time that you mm -hmm. devote to Israel-Palestine, do you think it is proportionate to the problems that we see in so many other parts uh, of the world? Have you, have you, have you, have, has your producer looked at our reports on Myanmar, how many we produced over the last few years, far more than we did on, on Israel. No, I, you know, we are focusing on Israel at uh, apartheid because this is a massive human rights violation that must be denounced. I was in Israel myself to launch this report. I, I have to tell you, I have never been in an environment where I confronted so much hopelessness and the absurdity of the, of, of how apartheid is uh, is worked, worked itself in the context of the, uh, of, of, of the occupied territories and, and, um, and Israel is mind boggling. All right. Well, look, look, you, you know, you, I mean, I you, just. You've made that point. Let's move on because well, we don't have much time left and we okay. don't want to just focus on particular countries. I mean, how embarrassing is that? You've got a host who has picked the topic of conversation and then he says, oh, have we spent too much time talking about Israel? Well, if there wasn't more time spent on Myanmar or Ethiopia, that's because you didn't ask about it. And this is a classic response towards anyone who talks about Israel. Why don't you talk about these other countries? But we do. You just don't get mad about it. It has an entirely different level of sensitivity. When I talk about the UAE and the uh, you know joint airstrike with Saudi Arabia on Yemen, one of the most grave humanitarian crises on the planet right now, I don't have people denouncing me as Islamophobic for doing so. So you can't cause an explosion every time someone talks about Israel and then goes, oh, this is getting a lot of prominence. It's entirely driven by the response. Maurice, why does British media seem to give people who point out Israeli apartheid a harder time than the Israeli government itself? This isn't just someone randomly spouting things that she's come up with. She's she's head of Amnesty International, you know, and 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 the way the way that interview that we just watched was conducted was that was quite appalling. I mean, she would be, uh, I think, within her rights to sort of. Yeah, as you say, come on, we're going to ask you about this stuff. And now we're going to uh, criticise you because you're always talking about this stuff that we've just asked you about. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, I, I, don't know, I don't know why, that, why the media is uh, slanted in such a heavy direction on that one. Of course, when the BBC has given representatives of the Israeli government a hard time, or in this case, a former representative of the Israeli government a hard time, they were absolutely deluged by complaints and they ended up caving, backing down and apologizing. That's something we discussed on this show and we'll put a link to that video in the description. Just looking at your super chats, we've got Robert with $10. Thank you very much, Robert, who says neolib conforming apparatchiks are taking over the Labour Party the same way they took over the Democrat Party in the US and the left is going to suffer their feckless leadership in the exact same way. Of course, looking at the role of neoliberalism in constraining the spectrum of respectable opinion is something that we talk about an awful lot. That's kind of like the underlying foundation of everything that we talk about. So if that's something you're interested in, subscribe. You might like it. Who knows?
Um, thank you, Maurice, for joining us this evening. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ash. And thanks everyone for watching me tonight. You can come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.